start flipping that to Revelation. Uh, but, but, but as you do that, I, I want to continue to introduce you to introduce myself to, to many of you who who don't don't know me. Maybe this is your first time in student ministry tonight. Welcome to Impact. Maybe this is your first, second, or third time. We still want to welcome you. Uh, my name is Chase Bright. Now, one thing you should know about me, because I know we got a lot of schools represented here. We got Murray, we got Grays, we got Marshall, we got CCA, we got New Covenant, and I'll probably miss one, CFS. Uh, we got a lot of schools here tonight. You should know that I went to one of those schools, the schools that, wear, that wears orange and blue. Give it up for, for Marshall County, the three of us here tonight. I've been booed for worse. I've been booed for worse. I am from Marshall County, but let me tell you something um, about being a Marshall Countyan. We are supposed to love a holiday that uh, always comes around in April. It's called Tater Day. Now, I'm a Marshall Countyan, born and raised in Marshall County, but I got to be honest with you tonight, I am not a big fan of Tater Day. Now, hear me, it has nothing to do with taters. I really, really enjoy some good taters. The issues I have with Tater Day is, well, first, I'm not sure I really belong. Because if you look at, like, I like to wear my Nikes, usually got my Nike blazers on. Most people at Tater Day seem to wear cowboy boots. And listen, I love cowboy boots. I have a pair of cowboy boots. But me and cowboy boots, we just, it just doesn't look good on me. So I don't know if I really belong. But, but, but more importantly, I'm not really a big fan of Tater Day because I'm just not sure I trust it. And specifically what I'm talking about is, is I'm not sure I trust the, the big part of Tater Day, the carnival rides at Tater Day. Like, listen, you, you can't fool me. I live about two minutes from the Benton Park where those rides go up. Like, I go to sleep one day, and the next day all these rides are up. I'm like, how did it, it get here? It's like it goes up overnight, and, and I'm not dumb, right? I know it's just a bunch of random jokes, that put those Tater Day rides together. Like, I'm 100% absolutely sure they are not OSHA approved. And so you won't be seeing me or my kids or my wife getting on any of these rides. We don't trust the people in charge of putting those rides together quite enough, though they're terrific people, to actually get on them. And so here's my point. Here's where I'm going. The only way you could get me on one of those Tater Day rides is if I did trust the people in charge of putting them together. When we trust people in charge, it tends to make all the difference in the world. And maybe we could, we could apply this principle to something a little bit more serious than Tater Day. We could apply it to, to our country, right? I'm a, I'm a little bit of a political nerd. I, I love history. Not so proud of this, this fact about our country. From, from Harry uh, Truman to Donald Trump, who... We're both presidents and everyone in between there. Did you know that the final presidential job approval rating of our presidents when they're leaving office is an average of 47%, less than 50, less than half? Our current president as of now is at 40%. And so that means that, that since Harry Truman, which I think left office in 1952, that, that means that more than half of our country has not looked favorably upon the job our presidents have done while they've been in office. And the continued outlook of people in our country for 70 years now is that we have trouble trusting the people in charge, and not without good reason. 
But what if I told you tonight that you absolutely can trust the one in charge? Now, I'm not talking about a president, and I'm certainly not talking about any ride at Tater Day. Tonight, I'm talking about the one who is really in charge. You see, in your life, I know we come from all different walks. We got different things going on. Everyone's got something different going on in their life as you walked into this room tonight. And I realize that everything and maybe even everyone around you may be unreliable and untrustworthy. But tonight, I think you're going to see that the one in charge, the one who is really in charge, is completely reliable and completely trustworthy. And his name is Jesus. And so tonight, our passage is going to show us that we can trust in Jesus, the one who is really in charge. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 1. To start us off, we're going to read verses 4 through 8. So follow along with me in your Bibles. Beginning in verse 4, the Bible says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold. He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Verse 8 says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come in here with distractions from life, from within this room. God, I pray that by your Spirit, you would totally rid us of all distractions in this moment so that our minds and so that our hearts can be totally fixated on your Word. God, by your Spirit, would you remind us, encourage us, convict us tonight that we're not in charge, a president isn't in charge Jesus is in charge, and we can trust the one in charge. It's in the precious name of Christ we ask. Amen. Now, I have, uh, I have two main objectives tonight in this message. First, I want to prove to each one of you that Jesus is indeed the one who is really in charge. And second, as I do that, I want to show you that you can trust in Jesus the one who's really in charge. And so the first thing that that we're just going to see tonight in our text is is that Jesus, as the one in charge, has the power. Jesus has the power. If you'll look in your Bibles with me again in Revelation 1, starting in verse 4, we'll read just verse 4 again and the beginning part of verse 5. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, And from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. A little bit of of a background here to, to Revelation. 
It was written to the seven churches in the Roman province of Asia sometime, I believe, in the early to mid-90s. Not 1990s, not 1890s, like 90s. 90 A.D. And those seven churches, we we see them uh, later on in verse 11. We see the church in Ephesus, the church in Smyrna, the church in Pergamum, the the church in Thyatira, the church in Sardis, the church in Philadelphia, and the church in Laodicea. And so this province of Asia, it's located in what we know today as modern-day Turkey, in the southwest part of Asia. And during this time, in the mid-90s, it was under Roman control. And Rome was ruled, was led by an emperor whose name was Domitian. And we're going to show you a picture on the screen of Domitian. So Domitian, he's the Roman emperor from 81 A.D. to 96 A.D. And he was known for for being one of the most unjust emperors in Roman history, and specifically for persecuting Christians. And so listen, I hear this a lot. Sometimes I complain about this a lot. We, We think it's hard to live in the United States of America in 2023. We may be right. But imagine being a Christian under the leadership of Domitian. He demanded that people refer to him as master and God. But here's the thing. These Christians in these seven churches, they served not Domitian, not a false god, not a man god, but the true God. And the true God wanted them to know that despite what's going on around them, despite the persecution, Despite who looked like they were in charge, despite what they were going through, the true king is the one who is really in charge. In other words, you got Domitian who may have looked like he had the power, but Jesus is the one who really has the power. And I think you know this, but you know what? There's a big difference between Domitian who wanted you and the people who, he, uh, who were under him to call him master and God but there's a really big difference between Domitian and the true God. And so we're just going to list some of those differences. The first difference between Domitian and the true God is the true God is eternal. We see in the scriptures, grace to you and peace, catch this, from him who is and who was and who is to come. And see, the fact that Jesus is and was and is to come, it's pointing us to this reality that he's always existed. In other words, he's eternal. And Domitian, he can't say that. He is not the eternal God. He is nothing else but a mortal man. He had a beginning, and in 96 AD, he had an end. Not just to his reign, but to his life. Jesus, on the other hand, has no beginning, and he has no end. Because he, and he alone, is the true God and not Domitian. Second here, the the true God, not only is he eternal, but he is faithful. And we see this in the scriptures. It says, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. You don't have to, to do much research to figure out that Domitian, he was not a good guy. He lied, he cheated, he stilled, and he literally killed to get in his position of power. He was immoral, not immortal, immoral, and he was unfaithful to everyone around him. So just compare that to a second to Jesus. 
the true God who's described as a faithful witness. Faithful witness means that Jesus is true to his word. Me and my wife, Caitlin, we really love binge-watching the show Survivor. Raise your hand if you've ever seen Survivor, at least heard of it, maybe know the concept. Really, the concept of the game is this, in case you don't know. Don't trust what anyone is actually telling you or you will go home. That's like the concept of the game. If you trust anyone's word, it will bite you in the butt because they're lying to you and they want you to go home. And at the time of this book, you definitely could not trust Domitian's word. Whatever he said his intentions were, I promise that wasn't his intentions. Well, think about politicians today. We, we really can't trust their word. Maybe you can't trust a family member's word. Maybe you feel like you can't trust a friend's word. But, listen, students, you can trust Jesus' words. Written in the scriptures for us, he is the faithful witness. He's the true God. Third, the true God is risen. It says, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead. Domitian is going to die in 96 AD. And I got news for you. Guess what happens when he died? He stayed dead. He got buried in a tomb, and that tomb did not open. Jesus Christ, on the other hand, is the king who died and then rose again and is now alive forevermore. He is risen. He is alive. He is reigning. Because he is the true God, not Domitian or anyone else. Fourth and finally here for this first point, the true God. He's the king. He is the king of all the kings. Our verse says, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn on the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. That's kind of a cool title. Jesus is the ruler of who? Of the kings of the earth. Domitian may have demanded people to call him master and God, but Jesus is and always was the true master and God. Domitian may have thought he was the king. He may have thought he was in charge. A president who takes office today, both past, present, future, they may think they're in charge. But Jesus Christ is the one who is really in charge. He is the king of all the kings of the earth, both past, present, future. He alone has the power. He's the one really in charge. But not only does Jesus have the power, next we're going to see that Jesus is the Savior. Look back in your Bibles with me to Revelation 1. We'll, we'll pick up in the second half of verse 5 and read through verse 6. It says, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Catch this. In, in the mid-90s A.D., Domitian, he's not in charge. But guess what? He's also nobody's savior. A president who may come into office today, a politician who may come into office today, they're nobody's savior. Jesus Christ, as the real God, as the real king, he is the only savior of men. That's why John says in verse 5, to him, that is Jesus, who loves us 
and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Tell me, students, tell me one other person who can say that. That he loves you so much that he chose to shed his own blood to die for you, to free you from your sins. Like, tell me, one person who can claim that. Listen, I know many of you have, have gone to this church or a church for most of your life, and you've heard the fact that Jesus has died on a cross for your sins. But have you ever thought to just think about this reality? He didn't have to do that. Jesus was not obligated to die on a cross for any single person in this room. But he did. Why? Because he loves you. I find it so interesting that in Revelation 1.5, it's one of the only places in the New Testament where God's love for us is put in the present tense. Nearly everywhere else in the New Testament, the way the Bible describes God's love for us, it's past tense. It's loved. For example, one of our favorites, John 3.16, God so loved the world, that he gave his only son. Galatians 2.20, the life I live, I now live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. God's love is put in the past tense. But here when we open Revelation, the Bible puts God's love for us in the present tense, to him who loves us. I need you to hear this tonight. This is exciting. It's a truth you've heard, but you need to feel it tonight. You need to believe it tonight. The God of the universe loves you. The God of the universe adores you. You are the apple of his eye. How easy is it for us to forget that simple truth? Can you imagine being one of the Christians from this original, from the, from the original churches that received this book? Like, just imagine this. Nearly everything around you is going about as bad as it possibly could go. The mission is in charge, and he's harsh, and he's unjust. On top of that, he despises Christians. He hates you. And not just that, the, the world hates you at this time. Imagine you're being persecuted for following Jesus. You're watching your Christian family members, you're watching your Christian friends get martyred to their death. Every single day, you wake up in the mid-90s and you fear for your life. Every single day, you wake up and you're mocked for your faith. You're treated like an outcast. How easy would it have been to think, you know what? Not only am I really not sure if God is in charge of this thing, I'm really, really not sure if he loves me. Because look at my life. Now forget about the 90s and just imagine your life right now as you walked into these doors. I got a feeling, in fact, I know for many of you, everything in your life is not going the way you would like it to go. Now, you might not be 
at risk of being killed for your faith, but you know what? Maybe you go to school and you're living for Jesus and you do get made fun of. Maybe you don't get beaten up for your faith, but you know what? Maybe you're living for Christ at home and your parents and your siblings and your cousins, they think you're a little strange for it. On top of that, I promise every single one of us in this room tonight are living in the reality of a broken world marred by sin. Every single one of us have had to watch someone we love die. We've all attended a funeral. Life at home for many of us is often unpleasant. Friendships get severed. You get sick. You get injured. Life gets hard. And sometimes it really stinks. And all of a sudden, those thoughts seem to creep in your head. You know what? I'm not sure, A, if God's in charge. But I'm not really even sure that he loves me. Because look at my life. I want you to listen closely to me tonight. I know with the utmost confidence that Jesus loves you. And I know that you can be sure of this tonight. You want to know how I know that Jesus loves you? Are you ready? This is profound. Because the Bible tells me so. Revelation 1.5 says that he loves us. And he has freed us from our sins by his blood. You know, my my favorite hymn in the world, me and my wife, Caitlin, we sing it to our kids every single night. It's Jesus Loves Me. And I've got to guess that, that maybe most of you know this song. You know the lyrics, Jesus Loves Me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Maybe you know the lyrics. Have you ever heard about how the song was created, though? Listen in to me, because this is is going to blow your mind. You might not want to hear how this song was created, but I'm going to tell you anyway. It was written in 1859 by a woman named Ann Warner. You want to know why she wrote, Jesus Loves Me? Are you ready? She wrote it as an attempt to comfort a dying child in that child's last days of her life. This child was on her deathbed. A real story. Anne and her sister Susan wrote Jesus Loves Me to make sure that this little girl knew that despite her circumstances, despite her sickness, and despite her imminent death, Jesus loves her. And maybe you know the first stanza, but have you ever heard the second stanza? It's my favorite. It says, Jesus loves me, he who died. Heaven's gates to open wide. He will wash away my sin. Let his little child come in. You see, that little girl needed to know that Jesus loves her. And the proof of his love is in his death on a cross for her, washing away her sin so that the gates of heaven would be open to her. Hear me. The proof of God's love for you tonight is not found in the circumstances of your life. It's found in the cross where he gave his life. 
That's the proof of God's love for you. In the cross, Jesus loves you, and the proof is in his blood that was shed for you. All year long, we're going to see in Revelation, it's going to hit us with this reality that life, most of the time, is not sunshine and rainbows. In fact, usually, generally, it's really hard. There's a lot of suffering for Christians. There's going to be a lot of persecution. But through it all, not only is God in charge, but he never stops loving us. He never stops loving us. And we know because the Bible says he gave his life to free us from our sins. Please tell me, anyone who loves you that much, I'll tell you, nobody. Not only does Jesus have the power to save you, but he has the desire to save you. He's in charge. All the power, and that's a great thing for you and me because he loves us more than we can possibly imagine. He's our savior. He wants to be our savior, but as much as he wants to be our savior tonight, we would be wrong to forget that he is a holy God who looks at our sin with a desire to save us, but also who looks at our sin with eyes like a flame of fire. Which is going to lead us to our third point. Not only is Jesus our Savior, but thirdly, Jesus is the judge. The Savior of the world is simultaneously the judge of the world. Revelation 1-7 says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so, amen. You see, Jesus has died on a cross. And that death is sufficient to save anyone in this room tonight. But I need you to listen to me, because there's some of you in this room tonight who have not trusted in Jesus. I want to tell you what that means with absolutely no watering it down. It means that even though he loves you, and even though he's died for you, because you haven't trusted him, that means you have not been freed from your sins, and he is not your savior. But as it currently stands in this moment, if you're an unbeliever in this room, Jesus Christ is your judge. Verse 7 says he is coming with the clouds. What does that mean? It means he's coming back. Now, for those of us in this room who have been saved by Jesus, that's something we eagerly await for. We say, even so, amen, come Lord Jesus. We will celebrate when our Savior comes back on the clouds. It's going to be a good day. But for those of us in this room who have not yet been saved by Jesus because you still haven't trusted in him, That's not something you're going to celebrate. That is something that you ought to be paralyzed in fear about tonight. You're not going to celebrate when Jesus comes back if you're an unbeliever. You are going to cry. Because that's not your Savior coming on the clouds. That is your judge. And if you don't believe me, look back to verse 7. It says, every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And this is what gets me. All tribes will well on account of him. So unbelievers, hear my voice. 
You are no match for Jesus. I've talked to, to many of you. You might be playing it tough right about now. You might be playing it cool right about now. You might think you can stand before a holy God, but you are dead wrong. And when Jesus comes back on the clouds, you are not going to stick out your chest in pride. You are going to fall to your knees in terror. You're going to look up at the sky and you are going to wail. You are going to cry out in agony at the judge who is coming down on the clouds. But you want to know the worst part? When that happens, it's way too late. You're going to stand before a holy God full of your sin. And though he gave his life to save you, he will have no choice but to now judge you. And because you rejected him, he will judge you. He will condemn you to an eternal state of suffering that is called hell. Now praise God that Jesus is the Savior of all who trust in him tonight. Praise God. He has freed us from our sin through his death on the cross. But realize that he is the judge of all people who reject him. Though the gospel has been offered to you, you've chosen to reject it, and when he comes back, you are going to wail on account of him. Jesus is in charge. You might think you have the power, you might think you can save yourself, but you cannot. He's the one with all the power. He's the only Savior. And to all who reject him, he is the rightful judge. And how can he be all these things, all-powerful, Savior, judge? Well, the fourth point is because he is God. Jesus Christ is God. Revelation 1.8 says, I am. It's a quote around it because now Jesus is speaking. I am the Alpha and the Omega says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, if you know just a little bit of Greek, you probably know what Jesus is saying. Because Alpha is the first letter in the Greek alphabet, and Omega is the last letter in the Greek alphabet. So in verse 8, here's the interpretation. Jesus is literally saying, I'm the first and the last. He is appealing to his eternal divinity. And so Jesus, as the eternal God, is the one who's really in charge. And as God, that means he has all the power. And just in case we don't get it yet, he says in verse 8, he is, he was, he is to come, the Almighty. In other words, he is God, he's always been God, and as God, he is coming back. The Almighty One, literally that means he is the one with all the might. So the whole point of the text, Revelation 1, 4 through 8, is the fact that Jesus is the one in charge. And because he's in charge tonight, I'm going to say we got to do three things as a response. First, you and I in this moment must acknowledge that Jesus is the one in charge. Like first we're going to hit the brain. Right now, you must acknowledge that Jesus is in charge. And if he's in charge, guess what? That means man is not. That means the president is not. That means pastors are not. And oh yeah, that means you are not. You're not in charge. 
Not of your life, not of my life, nothing. Jesus is in charge. Acknowledge that. Second, and this is absolutely crucial, we must trust Jesus as the one in charge. This is where it seeps into the heart. See, for some of us, this means that tonight we have to stop basing God's love for us on our circumstances And we have to start basing God's love for us in the cross. I know life is not the way that maybe you would like it to be. But God is in charge, and guess what? He loves you. And he's working all things, even the bad stuff, for your good. So trust in him. Don't trust in your circumstances. Trust in the cross. Trust in him. Trust in his plan. I promise he knows what he's doing. And so if you're a believer tonight, remember that he is a good God. He is a loving God, and he is working everything out for your good. But for others of you, this second response means that tonight you need to trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior for the very first time. And just in case you don't know who I'm talking about, I'm talking to every single unbeliever in this room. When Jesus Christ comes back on the clouds, you are going to acknowledge that he's in charge. And you will wish that you had trusted in him, but it's going to be too late. And when he comes back, you are going to wail on account of him. It doesn't change the fact that he loves you. It doesn't change the fact that he's proven that he loves you because he's died on the cross for you. It doesn't change the fact that instead of judging you like you deserve, he wants to free you from your sin and save you tonight. So that when he comes back on the clouds, you will not wail on account of him, but with all the other believers, you will fall to your knees and celebrate because that is your savior. But in order for that to happen, when Jesus comes back, you must respond by trusting in him tonight. Nothing else on that day is going to get you into heaven. Nothing else on that day is going to make you right with God. Not the fact that you're here tonight, not your good works, not your Bible reading plan, not your church attendance, not your parents. Nothing is going to work. You know what's going to work? being dressed in the righteousness of Jesus, which only comes through trusting in his death and resurrection, only comes through trusting him as your Lord and Savior. And so tonight, just very honestly, that's what many of you need to do. And finally, once we've acknowledged that Jesus is in charge and once we've trusted in Jesus as the one in charge, here's where it gets very applicable. So we've hit the head, we've hit the heart, now we're going to hit the hands. What should we do? We should walk out of these doors, walk out of small groups tonight, and go live like Jesus is in charge. Go live like it. You see, these first century Christians, they would have got this book, and they would have been so encouraged to not fear or bow down to Domitian as their God, but instead to continue to learn, to, to live and serve the true God, because he's really in charge. And it's the same for you and me tonight. We got to acknowledge and we got to trust that Jesus is in charge and then go live under his leadership. 
That means in, in everything we do this week, we don't do for man. We don't do for friends. We don't even do for family. Everything we do this week, we do it for one person, and it's the one who's really in charge, which is Jesus Christ. We live to please him this week, the ruler of kings of the earth, not anyone else. We live to serve him this week. We live to worship him this week. And so before we dismiss the small groups tonight, that is what we're going to do one more time. We're going to worship the one in charge. His name is Jesus. And so if I have our band back up here, we're going to respond. And I just want you to hold on before you get too squirmy. Because for those of us in this room who have been freed from our sins by his blood, here's what we're going to do. To believers, we're going to stand and we are going to worship with grateful hearts. If you want to put your arms out wide, if you want to stretch your arms high to heaven because you're so grateful to the salvation that Jesus has bought for you by his blood, that's what you do. But believers, we worship. Starting now, leading all week long, we worship our God, the one in charge. But for those of us who have not been freed from our sins tonight, this next song is a chance for you to change that. And not you change that, but trust in the one who can change that. His name is Jesus. Tonight you have an option. You can either pridefully continue to reject Jesus, unbelievers, or you can give up your pride tonight. You can repent of your sins tonight, and you can put your hope and trust in the one who can save. The one who laid down his life, shed his own blood to free you from your sin. Unbeliever, hear me. Today is the day of salvation. Tonight you stand with the rest of us and you find a leader, you find me, you find Maggie, and you tell us that tonight is the night. I want to give my life to Jesus and when he comes back, I want to celebrate. That's what we're going to do. We're going to sing how great is our God. He is a great God. So let's praise the great God, the one in charge who loves us. Let's pray real quick. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you. I pray that believers would be encouraged to acknowledge and trust you as their, as their Lord, as the one in charge, and they would go forth and, and live this week in that reality. And I pray that the unbelievers in this room right now would respond by putting their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. It's in Christ's name we pray.